everyone. Good morning. Good afternoon. Thanks again for tuning in to another NEMA podcast. I'm Jonathan Stewart, and today we have Roy Alexander with RWA Engineering. Say hello to everyone, Roy. Hello, everybody. How's it going? Roy is a full-time consultant now, but has 38 years working as an engineer for Pennsylvania Power and Light. Uh, Roy, given your knowledge about capacitors and extensive experience on IEEE's capacitor subcommittee, I'm assuming a lot of your time at PPNL was spent specifying, installing, and maintaining cat banks. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Um, I was known pretty much as Mr. Capacitor, and uh, pretty much it was. It started out with mostly purchasing specs and you know factory inspections and that kind of thing, but moved also into doing maintenance documents and so forth for for the field guys and even giving courses to the field guys on capacitors. So, uh, yeah, it was pretty extensive. I'm I'm glad we have Mr. Capacitor here to join us today. I suppose there are worse nicknames to have. Speaking of capacitors, we're here today to talk about a guidance document that NEMA recently published on cat bank design. In 30 seconds or less, can you tell our audience about this paper? Uh, the paper lists the standards and provides kind of a hit list for where to go to find the needed design details in the four most relevant IEEE standards relevant to cap banks. IEEE 18, which is the standard for the power capacitors, IEEE 1036 application guide, and C37.99, which is the guide for protection of shunt capacitor banks, and C37.012, it's the application guide for capacitance current switching. So you, I, I think the term you used was a hit list. Can you explain to our audience what a hit list is? Yeah, it's a, it's a table that tells you where in each of the standards the requirements are for a given topic. So for instance, if you want to know where to find requirements on bushing details, you could look up bushing details on the table and see that what you're looking for is in IEEE 18, section 6.5. Okay, and then of course, in order to, to read that section, you would you would go purchase the standard or, or look for it if you already have it. Uh, who's going to be interested in, in, in this hit list and in the other uh, information the document has? It's primarily intended for substation engineers that are somewhat new to their role. So the the aspiring Mr. Capacitors out there. Are there some common errors that you've seen in purchasing specs from, from this or, or other demographics? Well, I wouldn't say there's so much errors, but areas where the design specs could be a little more clear and both purchaser and the vendor would benefit. And I'm sure you've got a few examples of this in your back pocket. Would you mind sharing one or two with us? Okay. Well, the first one coming to mind is that purchasing specs have a general reference to all relevant IEEE, ANSI, NEMA, maybe even IEC standards and guides and relevant sort of a subjective term. And how is the vendor supposed to know what to do with that? So it could involve the vendor having to go through all kinds of standards to find out which ones, and that can slow down the whole process. So it needs to be sorted out. The purchaser should be more specific and only reference the the four standards that I mentioned 
for capacitor banks. Okay, that, that certainly makes sense. Uh, what's another example of how this document would help a, a specifier draft better uh, purchasing docs? Well, the mounting configurations. I've seen some specs that make it look like that the designer thinks all racks are the, somewhat interchangeable, and that's really not the case. They don't all work for the same purpose. I mean, depending on what you're doing, if you have a flat rack, the whole thing is different than a edge-mounted or upright-mounted. Upright mounting has the smallest footprint, so it's suitable for a pole mounting, but it's tall and may not be as suitable for a station bank. If you read our paper, you'll know that IEEE 18, Section 6.9, and, and the figures make that very clear. Uh, well, those are two good examples. I'm sure those were just the first two that came to mind and that you could probably go uh, on and on, given your, your decades of, of writing and reviewing these documents. Yes, uh, there's a lot of them. So we've talked a lot about what existing standards cover. Let's maybe go outside uh, the, the bounds of the document a little bit and, and talk about what existing standards don't cover. Where do you see gaps in, uh, in the current uh, IEEE and, and other standards? Well, that is a good question. And the first that comes to mind, it's a biggie. It's in uh, regarding how you ground the neutral, the capacitor bank. And there's not a lot of guidance on how to choose among these. There's ungrounded neutral, single point grounding, peninsula grounding, and some people don't even pay attention and they just connect it to the ground grid. And at the risk of asking you to articulate the obvious, why does the grounding method make a difference? Well, there's trade-offs depending on which one you want, both for insulation level and protection. For example, uh, utilizing an ungrounded neutral requires the neutral to be insulated for full line to ground voltage, which it sees momentarily during energization. Also, grounded neutral puts a higher recovery voltage stress on the switching device. That can be either from one and a quarter to over two times the stress that a grounded neutral switching device would see. Uh, so it depends on the number. Well, where are you in that range? Depends on how close the switching poles close to one another. But on the plus side, an ungrounded neutral keeps all the energizing transient currents out of the ground grid, and it results in less coupling of energizing transients into the control system. Single point grounding may require a little bit more insulation, but it's still way below what the phase-to-ground uh, phase system insulation is. It will also keep back-to-back -back switching transients out of the ground grid. It doesn't keep normal energizing transients. They're usually not the big deal. The back-to-back -back ones are the big deal. Peninsular grounding keeps the ground grid transients in its own little area of the substation, and it reduces control system transients below what connecting to the regular mesh ground grid would do. Any grounded neutral will reduce recovery voltage on the switching device to a minimum, provided that the system supplying the cap bank is a grounded neutral system. Well, certainly no surprise that the method of grounding makes a difference in, in how the systems perform and, and operate. So thanks for unpacking that for us. Uh, is there another quick one uh, that you can talk about in terms of standard gaps? Yes, it's the sort of the edge-to-edge -edge dimensions of the whole capacitor bank. 
unit dimensions are very well governed by the standards, but there's nothing for a complete bank. This means that bank sizes vary from OEM to OEM, and that can cause some problems for interchangeability. And of course, by interchangeability, we're talking about replacing one vendor's product with another vendor's product, right? Yes. I mean, that's the intent. We want them to be interchangeable. But it's it's really important when you're replacing failed units. And for for an example, if you have an externally fused capacitor bank, the dimension from the mounting bracket bearing surface, that's where it connects to the rack, to the bushing connection, that dimension is really important to maintain the fuse geometry. And to preserve this, the new unit must have the same dimensions in that respect as the existing unit that you're replacing. Sometimes this can be accommodated by spacers under the mounting bracket or by using a longer bushing than would be normally required for insulation reasons. So there are workarounds, but even the workarounds could be standardized, and I believe the industry would benefit from that. So let's stay on the topic of of uh, standardization just for another minute. When it comes to industry standards, we talk a lot about benefits like interchangeability, which is what you and I had an exchange about. Uh, other things like speeding up uh, time to delivery, shortening lead times. What's one benefit of standardizing around cap bank size and configuration that doesn't get talked about a lot in, in from your perspective? Well, the, the ease of maintenance, the bank size and configuration do have a, a big thing to do with, like, vehicle access. Some of these, they're only three feet apart, and you can't really drive a truck down between them. Now, can all the units be reached with a bucket truck or a man lift, or do you have to use ladders? Simple things like a neutral bus may block access to one end of the capacitor bank. These challenges could be largely resolved by industry standards. Well, Roy, uh, thank you so much for spending a little while with us this morning. We really appreciate it. You've been a wealth of knowledge. I always like to give my guests the last word. So is there any parting words of wisdom that you want to share with our audience? Yeah, thank you. One item the NEMA paper doesn't address, but I'm a big advocate for this, is purchasing specs to include cartoon drawings to convey to the vendor what they want it to look like. A picture is worth a thousand words. This will preempt a lot of confusion and questions that could otherwise arise when the vendor sits down to flesh out a quote. Roy, thanks again for your time, and, and thanks most of all to our listeners for tuning in. This has been another NEMA podcast. Thank you. Thank you.